Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So many years growing up, when I was a, a kid, we would do this epic road trip every year. And we would start uh, in my home state, we'd start in Minnesota, in my parents' driveway, and we would end up in Florida, in my grandparents' driveway, uh, down in southern Florida. And it was just this nice time in the winter to get away, and we would start to drive. Sounds kind of nice right now. You don't have to drive as far. Uh, but it was just this beautiful time. And, and like I said, my grandparents, they, they lived in Minnesota most of the year. And then like many Minnesotans, they had a winter place uh, down in Florida that they would go to. And it was very nice. And uh, you know, as a kid, we, we looked forward to this trip, but we did not look forward to the drive in the car. If you're not familiar with your US geography, they, those states are not near each other. <laughs> uh, it takes about 30 hours if you don't stop. I mean, you can stop and like use the restroom, but if you don't like spend the night. Uh, and that's what we would do. We'd often drive all the way through the night, and we'd get there, and it would be a 30-hour trip. And just kind of imagine this. You know, it's in the, in the family station wagon, three kids in the back, mom and dad in the front, 1,670 miles. Uh, wonderful memories, or memories, anyway. <laughs> 1,670 miles of listening to my Walkman cassette player and any random cassette I could get at that time. 1,670 miles of bothering my two sisters. I normally had to sit on one side of the car, and then my older sister had to sit between us, and then my younger sister was on the other side because we couldn't be trusted near each other. Uh, 1,670 miles of snacks and whining and complaining, uh, but eventually we would arrive, and uh, by the end, you know, the last several hours for a little boy is pretty exciting, because if you open your eyes and you look out the window and you just watch the ditches, which are filled with water, you can see alligators sometimes, uh, the last I don't know, five, six hours. So once you get there, you're like, you're, go you're done. 
I mean, that, that's good. But, but again, it's just this weird concept. Like, many Americans have stories of, of road trips, stories of road trips uh, either across multiple states or just, just long trips that, that families have done. Uh, and it's, it's a thing that, that Americans tend to enjoy. Uh, did you know the average American, this is not speaking of road trips, this is like commuting, but the average American drives 30 miles a day. Some of you are beating that average. Many of you are not. <laughs> but somebody's making up for you. <laughs> somebody's doing so much more than that that it makes up for people that live in small towns and, and don't get uh, travel a ton, right? But 30 miles a day. But in Jesus' time, in the first century world, the average person living in his area would have only traveled in a 30-mile radius from the place they were born in their entire life. So your entire life would be spent within 30 miles of the place you were born for the average person. Uh, if you don't know your mileage up and down Highway 4, Angels Camp is 27 miles away. And Bear Valley is 30 miles the other direction. So if you were born in Arnold, the average person would never leave that section of the world. Uh, and, it's, and it's interesting because, uh, of course, they have no vacations, they have no road trips, but in today's reading, we look and we hear about these wise men or these magi, and that they traveled uh, really probably about 900 miles to do this journey to meet uh, Jesus uh, in the place where he was born. And, and clearly something in our mind should say, like, this is significant. Right? If most people in their world never traveled 30 miles uh, away from where they were born, and, and there, then there's these group of people that are traveling 900 miles to go experience something, to go do something, uh, it clearly stands out. Something is happening here. God is doing something. And, and 900 miles, I feel like, is a big enough number that it's hard to picture what's 900 miles away. Uh, so I looked it up. <laughs> Here you go. If you drove north 900 miles, you started in Arnold, you drove north 900 miles, you would still be in the U.S., but barely. You would be north of Seattle, uh, right at about the Canadian border. That's the distance we're talking here that they traveled. If you drove a different direction, you could be in Yellowstone National Park in 900 miles. If you drove south uh, and, and turned some, you would be in New Mexico just shy of Albuquerque. So 900 miles is a lot further than Bear Valley, right? <laughs> it's a lot further than Angel's Camp. It's a lot further than, than most people would be traveling. And, and there's something really significant here. And not only are they traveling that far, they're not doing it in the family's minivan in the 1980s. They're, they're doing it uh, by foot. They're, they may be by camel or, or riding on donkeys. Horses weren't as great for them because uh, it's pretty rocky. And in the, in the Middle East, um, horses can, can break their ankles sometimes. So, so they like to travel by camel, they like to travel by donkeys, and, and mostly by foot. 900 strenuous miles, and, and not only is that difficult, um, the first century world was a very dangerous world. It's not as simple as, oh, we're going to go on this trip and it's going to take some time and we're going to take this time out of our, our schedule to go do this. Uh, or we're not going to be working in the meantime and we need to plan that. 
Um, these roads, especially these remote roads, this is where bandits would love to be, uh, especially around a blind corner. So how this would work is, um, is in their world that you would be traveling and you'd go around a blind corner and there'd be a whole group of people waiting to ambush you. And especially if you were, say, wealthy, maybe you were carrying some gifts that were possibly fit for a king, uh, and, and you were traveling and you had all this stuff, this is very, very vulnerable. Uh, but yet they're willing to do it, yet they're willing to go out. And, and yet we also realize in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 2 that King Herod and the other Jewish leaders didn't travel the five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So here you have one group of people that is willing to travel 900 miles, and they are the most unlikely people, I think, in the entire Advent story, uh, nativity story in the Bible. I mean, if you were going to plan this whole thing, you're going to bring a Jewish Messiah in, you're going to have him born in this town, you wouldn't even think of bringing in these, these magi, these, we call them wise men, but really, like, we get the word magic from this word magi. They're, they're uh, astrologers, they look at the stars, but they... They believe that the stars are like deities. So they're looking at the stars as gods, and they're trying to interpret what's going on, and yet these are the people that show up. Again, if you were going to write this story, you just probably wouldn't even include them. They're just so bizarre. They're so off to the side. But we read that after Jesus is born, of course, the shepherds come, also an unlikely group, the poorest of the poor of their time, or the ones that are ushered in, that arrive to Jesus, and then here we have these wise men, these magi that come from the east. And they travel in, and we read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Notice the sentence before that. It says, in the time of King Herod, who's a king? <laughs> you shouldn't pick up on that part. <laughs> There's a king, and then they come, and they arrive to him, the king, and they say, who is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw the star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod not only is a king, he's kind of he's put in place by the Roman Empire, so he's kind of like with the Romans, but, but he is the king of the area. Um, and he's, he's definitely someone all through kind of Roman sources. He certainly existed, certainly had all these things. It's, it's not just in the Bible, King Herod here, but we also know a lot about him from these other sources. And when he took over as king, he killed the rest of his family. Because they threatened his throne. So this is a guy that has wiped out all of his siblings. He's even killed some of his children. Because he is king in his mind. And no one will take that away. So the magi, or at this point, we probably shouldn't call them wise men, uh, they show up to this king. <laughs> and they say, Who is the, who's the one that's just been born? We saw the, the prophecies have talked about this star that's going to rise and and... And we've come to worship him. We've come 900 miles uh, to get here. Who is this, this one? Where, where is he at? 
And King Herod reacts in probably the way you would expect King Herod to react. He doesn't want to just turn them away. He wants to find out who is being talked about here. So he sends them ahead. He gathers some of the religious leaders, some people that know these prophecies, and he says, where is this king supposed to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem, quoting from the Old Testament. So he sends them ahead to Bethlehem, and then he says, when you find him, why don't you come back to me? And that way I can go worship him too. How many of you believe King Herod? <laughs> and, right? I mean, it's very obvious what's going on. It says that later on they were warned in a dream uh, not to go back. And that's good. I don't know if it took the dream. <laughs> like, this, this seems pretty clear that this king uh, has bad intentions here. Um, but for the rest of this time, I want to just focus on these people of who are these magi, who are these wise men. Uh, they're so, it's so different than the nativity set that, you know, sits on, on your mantle. Uh, and those are, those are great, but we have a lot of what's actually earlier church tradition that kind of works in here. Some, some churches will actually talk about, like, names that are associated with, with the three of them. Um, here's what we know. Here's what we know from Scripture. It says that they come from the east. Now, historians believe that's most likely modern-day Pakistan, which was part of the Persian Empire uh, recently before this. And, and actually, it was uh, an area where, uh, close to Babylon, where the Israelites were in exile. Right? So they're in exile, and, and there's people like Daniel in the book of Daniel that are going on, and Daniel's writing is still there. So it makes sense that they would know some of the Old Testament. It makes sense that they would know some of this because the book of Daniel is, is from there. It was actually imported back when the people came back. So, so when they quote Daniel, uh, it makes perfect sense that they would still have these sources. So they're probably from Pakistan, uh, modern-day area. They're more like, most likely part of the scholarly group that we know existed. And, and there's this group of, of wise men, so to speak, and they would uh, read all sorts of different uh, religious documents from all over their known world, uh, and they kind of became experts in all of them. But like I said, they're, they're, they're pagans. They worship many different gods, uh, and they believe that the stars are actually gods that are up in the sky. Uh, and, and when the stars do certain things, it means that we can interpret them and we can understand the will of God. So, so they're kind of mixing all this together. They know these ancient documents, but they're also looking at the stars really intentionally, to try to, to try to see what God is doing. Um, not something we see the Jewish people doing in the Old Testament. But as they're looking at it, they, they discover something lining up with these prophecies they've heard of. They've heard of this star that is supposed to rise uh, to them in the West, and it's supposed to usher in this new Messiah, this new Jewish king that will come, and he will be uh, this really significant figure uh, for these people. So they notice that, and, and they actually set out, and, and we often see, part of where the nativity scene falls short, is that we see three of them in the nativity scene. You can read Matthew many times. You're not going to find three. <laughs> there's three gifts. That's where we get it from. So there's three gifts in Scripture, so they kind of have one person holding each one, but this was a whole caravan of people. These, these, even if there was three of them, 
there was a whole group of people traveling with them. Uh, there was a whole big group that was going, and they arrive, and, and again, they find Jesus. 900 miles later. They start quoting from the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers 24, 17, speaking of this moment, it says, I see him, but not now. This is a prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, meaning Israel. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Again, book of Numbers, Old Testament, so they clearly know this. They're looking for the star. Uh, it goes on in, in the book of Micah. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler. And that's actually what they quote in verse 6. So they've journeyed in search of this promised king, this Jewish Messiah, this one that was foretold long ago, this new king for God's people that was supposed to come. He was going to be a descendant of King David. Uh, and, and in their minds, he was going to throw off this Roman occupation. So the Romans had, had really, through military might and through terror, had taken over the whole uh, Mediterranean world, including Israel. And, and most of God's people were looking uh, for a savior to come rescue them, to come throw off this, this evil empire that had come to them, and to establish this new Jewish kingdom that they, they, they thought they were reading about in the Old Testament, that there was going to be this Jewish kingdom, and, and it was going to throw off the Romans, and, and this Messiah was going to be king, and then it was going to usher in this time of world peace. So the wise men come to this Messiah with gifts that are far from ordinary. Gifts that in their rarity and in their preciousness are truly fit to be gifts for a king. And then we read right away in Scripture what happens next. Herod puts out a decree to kill all the boys under the age of two. He couldn't find where exactly Jesus was, so he, he just put out a decree to kill them all. And Jesus' family is able, is able to escape. They're able to flee, and they go to Egypt. And he lives in Egypt during part of his childhood. How do they do it? How can they afford it? This poor family, it's this poor couple, this, this young couple. And yet they have just received gifts fit for a king. You know, it's gold, and it's frankincense, and, and myrrh. And we know what gold is. That's pretty obvious. And frankincense and myrrh are these expensive oils, there's these expensive perfumes, and, and perfumes are very rare in their day, but also very precious, because it's a smelly world. <laughs> when you're living with, with animals, and, and uh, like I joked at Christmas Eve, if all the nativity sets were scratch and sniff, you would get a different picture of what's going on. So in a world like that, uh, perfumes are, are expensive, and there's something that only kings can afford. Uh, smelling good. Is, is not a luxury for all. And, and yet, to I think Mary and Joseph, this looked like gold and gold and gold. <laughs> you know, 
sell this other stuff and let's, let's get to Egypt. But how do they do it? Be, because it's gifted from these, these pagans, these, these people from the east that, that look to the stars, but yet God met them in that. If this isn't like breaking your categories of how you think God works, then I don't think you're, you're diving in deep enough. God is doing something really significant here. And it's like, as soon as we put God in a box and we think we know what God can do and can't do, that all of a sudden he sends a star to the east and reaches these people that, that in our minds that he has no business reaching. Why is he reaching out to them? Why is he sending them instead of the people in Jerusalem? What is, what is going on? But yet they come and they come humble. And they come bearing gifts, and, and we're told that, that not only are they uh, great people themselves, but they bow down and they worship him. Because God does what God wants to do, sometimes in the Bible. And, and if God's people uh, aren't going to do it, then, then he kind of figures it out. And, and I don't know, maybe that's challenging, but maybe that's encouraging. That God will, uh, will reach out to who he will reach out to. And, and when he uses us and we can spread the good news of the gospel, it is a joy and it is a, a wonder that he chooses to use each one of us. But, but if he wants to reach your coworker or, or your brother or your sister or whatever, if he wants to reach him with the gospel, he's going to do it. Let, let's not be putting God in a box in this next year. Thinking that we understand it all. Thinking that we, that we, can, that we can fully get what God's going to do in the world. And, and if we just know how God plays by these rules, here's God breaking all sorts of rules. And they're not rules that he made for himself in the first place. But they're rules that people made. They thought they knew how God was going to work. And God is like, no, if I want to reach those astrologers and bring them to my Messiah, I'm, I'm going to do it. Because I know what books they've read. <laughs> I know what stuff they've been studying, and, and I'm going to use them to save this, this young Jesus during this time. I don't know, that's encouraging to me. That's encouraging to me as I look in the year ahead, as I look... Uh, in Scripture, as I just look at what, what God is doing in the world, I love following a God that doesn't play by the rules. I love following a God that, that can't be put in a box, that we can't figure out, that we can't systematize and, and answer all these exact questions and, and think we can wrap our heads around who God is and how God is going to love people and how God is going to interact with others. Maybe that's like breaking some of your categories, but I love it. <laughs> I think it's really good. I think it's really good news. Because if, God, if I could understand God, that's not a very big God. If my, if my small human brain could really get all of this, th this is not... Uh, is that really who you want to follow? <laughs> you know, if you, if you could fully understand, if you, can, if you can think you can figure it out, and you're like, he's going to do this, and then he's going to do that... Oh, wait, and then the, the, the wise men show up? You know, but we just put them on the mantle and we pretend like it's normal. It's not normal. You, 
should read Matthew chapter 2 and be like, what is going on? <laughs> people don't travel more than 30 miles. Who are these people? And yet they come and they prepare uh, God here. You know, I think a big part of this whole story is that that they were willing to go. That when God spoke to them, they listened. I don't think God wasn't speaking to the other people. Maybe that's just how I interpret it. But, but I don't think the wise men were the only one that God was telling where Jesus was. But no one else came. And no one else listened. Or at least maybe if they understood, they were like, I'm not going to step that far outside of my comfort zone. I kind of have my own world. I've built not only a box around God, but I've built a box around myself. And I'm comfortable in it. And this is where I like to live. It's my own little ecosystem. And we've all done this, right? We have our own little comforts in our world, and yet we look at a year ahead. And, and here's the deal. When we were entering 2020, and when we were entering 2021, from this pulpit, I asked you this question, and I will ask you once again. Are you willing to be uncomfortable this year if it means you will grow closer to Jesus? Are you willing to, to push the boundaries of that bubble that you have made, whatever feels right, whatever feels safe, whatever feels like your space? You know, when my kids were real little, when, when William, our oldest, was little, I was full-time in seminary, which, if you don't know, is like grad school for pastors. Um, and Susan was working full-time, so I was the one that would take William to the doctor's appointments. And he was a toddler at the time, so I would take him. And it, it struck me as odd. One of the first times I took him, he, he was walking now, but, you know, I don't know, walking? I don't know kind of walking, falling, toddling. He's a toddler. <laughs> and one of the first things the doctors did is they lift up his pant legs and they look for bruises. But they're looking for what they called good bruises. See, because when you're a toddler, the world is hard and the world has sharp edges and you're trying to learn how to navigate in it and, and you're going to beat up your knees and your shins. You're, you're going to hurt your legs. And the doctor wants to see that that's happening. Because that, that says that the, the child's actually healthy. The child's walking enough. The child is moving around enough that they, they actually have bruises. So if they don't have bruises, that, that's the red flag. For some reason, something going on is, is too comfortable. They're not moving. You know, why aren't, they, why aren't they moving around yet? They should be falling. They should be hurting themselves. As a parent, it makes me a little nervous when the doctor's like, let me look for bruises. Like, I don't know, he falls. He's got small feet. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. He can't wear shoes. But that's so many of us. Right? I mean, why is the, why is the kid getting hurt? It's because he's functioning right on the edge of his comfort zone. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> he's getting injured, but it's, it's for the sake of growth. It's for the sake of, of becoming uh, more mature. It's for the sake of, of, of development. 
But yet we grow older and, and we don't like that so much. I don't want to say, like, do you want to be like a toddler this next year? But there's a little element of that, right? Like, do we want growth that bad? That we're willing to go through the uncomfortableness. Maybe even some of the pain. Not, not, that, it's, not that it's brutal. Not that we need to uh, have this just be awful. But, but are you willing to be uncomfortable enough if it means that you'll grow as a husband or as a wife? Is that a level of uncomfortable that you're willing to be? Are you willing to be uncomfortable enough to grow as a son or a daughter or as a mother or a father or a grandparent? Or or are you just going to plan to sit in your comfort zone for a year? Are you willing to be uncomfortable enough if it means you're going to grow as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Jesus? It's not going to come from the place of comfort. We all know that, that muscles only grow when we exercise them, right? And why? Because they're tearing a little bit. And you get sore, and it gets painful, but then it's stronger. I don't know, does that sound like your devotional life? <laughs> does that sound like your commitment to reading Scripture? Does that sound like your commitment to loving other people, to, to following God? Seeking after him, that, that, that you're willing to have this be uncomfortable if it means it will be fruitful, if it means it will bear uh, results in the future. You know, all this is true, of course, not just for our physical bodies, but this is also our emotional bodies, uh, our mental state, our spiritual selves. There's so many studies that show that it's only during times of discomfort that people truly grow, that people truly develop, that they become something other than uh, what they've been. And I know that the last couple years have been really uncomfortable. And that's probably an understatement, right? But, but I'm a nice, stoic Midwesterner, so I like my understatements. <laughs> But these last couple years have been uncomfortable, but when you look back, have you grown? Or has your goal been the entire time, let me just try to stay as much as I can in my own comfort zone? Have you grown as a follower of Jesus over this time? Have you, have you been able to rely on him more in, in maybe a different way? I was going to ask how many of us didn't have power this last couple weeks, but I think it's probably all of us, <laughs> at least at some point. Unless you just drove in today, then congratulations. <laughs> but you don't realize how much you need it till it's gone, right? And our spiritual selves are, are sometimes the same way. We, we don't realize how much we need God until we get into these hard times. We think we can kind of make it on our own. We think we can not only put God in a box, but, but we can stay in our own comfort box, and then, and then we can kind of control it all. I hope I'm not just preaching to myself. <laughs> Some people are nodding, so I'm going to say I'm not just. Uh, 
It's hard. And it takes some intentionality in this year ahead to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone and to grow in your faith. To grow in your devotion to Christ. To grow in your, uh, your studying of, of God's word and, and your studying of your own life and your own self and seeing how does, how does this apply? How do I play this out in the world? What does this look like when... Uh, when we don't have power and my neighbor's driveway is full of snow. That, that's not in here. You've got to read between the lines. <laughs> it doesn't say it, but I think it addresses it. I think it addresses what it looks like to love other people in, in a way that's just tangible and real. So, I guess I say all this because I realize that a lot of people's 2022 goals are to, quote, go back to normal. But I'm wondering if we could devote ourselves to something more than normal. If we could reach for something better than the way things were. If we look back, like, there's elements of, of us that, that was great, and there's elements that just, we were lacking. We can, we can be honest with ourselves. So what if, what if instead we wanted to be more dedicated to God? Or we wanted to show more love towards other people, not just in our actions, but also in our thoughts? Or that we just wanted to be more this person that God created us to be, more of our real selves, less, less shame or, or less these other things. That's a scary word, sorry for bringing that up uh, in church. <laughs> Shame is the one I'm referring to. But less of this and, and more, more Holy Spirit inside of us. I'll end with this. The wise men are, are this interesting piece in the Bible, and there's not a ton about it. That's why there's a lot of like church history where they kind of add details, because there's not a lot here. But what is here, I think, is pretty clear is that there were these people who saw light and they recognized that light is something significant to the point where they followed it. And they followed after it and when they got to the end of it, they found Jesus. And I think that's a goal that all of us could have in this year. We see the light of Christ. We don't just see it, we're not just aware of it, but we we follow after it, we pursue it, and at the end, we will find Jesus Christ. His love for the world, his love for others, his, his mercy that he has for us, his compassion that he has on his children. So let us live that kind of year.